a Podcast One production. This episode of the Next Billion Seconds User's Guide to the Future was produced in partnership with GIO. If we have learned anything from 2020, it's that we need to be prepared. When we're prepared, we can make the best of things, whatever happens. Nations prepared for the pandemic, like Taiwan and Vietnam, they fared better than others. Businesses that have taken up new technologies to make their employees work smarter and from anywhere those businesses have flourished. While many others, they look like they might have disappeared forever. And individuals, well, we're all learning about how much change we're prepared to absorb. It's all change. We're in uncharted waters here. In 2020, preparation is less about having policies and procedures in place to cover every eventuality. And it's more about being capable flexible, and resilient. So what's interesting, Mark, is that for many people, resilience is about survival. Resilience is about, I made it through, I've got fortitude, you know, I'm stoic. That's not what resilience demands of us. Like What we really need in a situation of constant change, in a situation where suddenly all of our knowledge means nothing because every single facet of society is completely overhauling What we need is resilience that helps us thrive. Now, that's my friend and fellow futurist Sally Dominguez reminding us that we're going to have to focus on thriving as we put the worst bits of 2020 behind us. Focus on this new world, this future, our future. Nations have a future. The decisions they make at the ballot box, at their borders, even at the pitch, All of those decisions shape their future. Organizations have a future. It's something that's never really spelled out in any plan or slide deck or presentation. But why do people come to work? Is it just for a paycheck? Or do they hold an idea, maybe even a vision for what they're doing? Those ideas shape that organization's future. And we as individuals, we also have a future. The decisions we make today carry their own consequences, visible tomorrow or a year or a decade or a century from now. Individual decisions in the present give form to our future. And as Sal notes, the way we choose to work together, that shapes our future too. I think a key part of resilience is the understanding that um, you may be okay within yourself, but we need connection. We need connection. COVID has shown this. We need connection to to flourish ourselves as human beings, human to human, but also for survival, for resilience. We need to work with each other. Alone or together, there's no question that the future will continue to surprise us. How much it surprises us, well, that part is up to us. We can never know what tomorrow will bring, but we can prepare. Prepare ourselves, prepare our businesses, even prepare our nations. Prepared 
we can make the best of whatever happens. And truth be told, we actually do already know the future, not in whole, but in parts. There are the usual suspects, floods and erosion, heat waves and drought and bushfires. And then there are some new ones. How do we operate in a world where everyone is going to be very worried about another outbreak? How do we feel about living in a world where everyone, including thieves, can see our comings and goings? And even if we don't know the content, we know quite a bit about the shape of the future. And that means we can be prepared. So for these six episodes of The Next Billion Seconds, we're going to do something a little different. Rather than looking off into the horizon, we're going to take a look at this present and learn what we can do right now, today, to help us grow more resilient so that we can find our footing before that distant horizon has become the ground beneath our feet. I'm Mark Pesci. Welcome to the Next Billion Seconds User's Guide to the Future. The story of coastal erosion in Australia is one of the great untold stories. It's extraordinary. You know, you can look at local newspapers from Hobart to Torres Strait and you'll see stories about, about coastal erosion. Um, but it rarely makes the national media. It's, it's one of these creeping, insidious problems that's affecting everything. So if we just go along the east coast and have a look, you know, Torres Strait, where, where sea levels are rising about three times faster than the national average. Um, you know, there, um, Saibai Island, you know, the federal government was so concerned about flooding of the community there, they built a seawall that cost $25 million. Next wet season, it was breached, damaged, so finished, so a waste of money. Um, you come further south, um, you know, all along the Queensland coast, you'll see little pockets of erosion into New South Wales, some big impacts. So Stockton, just north of Newcastle, that community's basically been cut in half by, by coastal erosion. They've already lost their community centre, childcare centre, a number of other things. And you come south um, to the northern Sydney suburbs, you see people whose properties are being washed into the sea. You go south to Victoria, you see um, beach boxes being washed away, surf clubs being washed away. Down into Tasmania, um, you know, there's houses being lost to coastal erosion in the Derwent estuary. So <laughs> this is just a, it's, it's, it's a pervasive phenomenon. That's Tim Flannery former Australian of the Year, author of many books, most recently The Climate Cure, and a consistently clear voice on the risks posed by our changing climate. And climate is the big risk. It's the one we already know all about. Now, here's Stephen Sherwood, a professor at UNSW and one of the authors of the 2013 report detailing the causes and impacts of climate change. Well, there's a lot of things we know about climate uh, and that we've known for a long time. We understand the greenhouse effect. We understand why um, carbon dioxide is increasing in the atmosphere. It's because of us. We know that's going to warm the system. We've known that for more than 100 years. Uh, we see warming happening. It's about what we expected. Uh, but then there's all these things that we, that we don't know yet. Now, I promise right up front that this series is not going to be some terrifying litany of all of the ways the planet is trying to kill us all. 
but we'd be flirting with disaster if we refuse to take the measure of climate change and then ask ourselves, okay, so what does this mean for us now? What do we do now about these risks? Well, first, we need to understand the risks. Here's Tim Flannery again. Look, the future climate is going to look both drier and wetter. Um, It's going to be very variable, hotter and probably cooler in some places. Um, it's, It's a shift, though, away from this marked stability. And you can see the signal very clearly in some of the kind of, I guess, the keynote trends of the changing climate. One of those is weather intensity is increasing. So rainfall events are getting uh, more intense. So instead of the gentle drizzling rain that used to wet the soil through the winter and then let the crop grow in spring, we're seeing these massive downpours that are just as likely to wash the soil away as, as it is to water it. And it's that intensity that's changing. And that's happening because the atmosphere is getting more energetic. There's simply more heat energy in the atmosphere to drive those events. And that's what's causing this intensity. This is the one thing we need to understand, the basic statement about risks. There's more energy in the atmosphere because heat is energy. Because there's more energy, there's more variability. The climate will be different and the weather will be different. And that's a big deal because the climate has been stable for a long time, as Tim points out. If you take the big geological picture of climate, the climate's always changing. You know, there are periods of stability through that change, though, and one of the most significant has been the last 8,000 years or so, where we've had an extraordinarily stable climate by geological you know, measures. Uh, and it's during that period that, that humans have developed cities, agriculture, complex civilizations that we know today. And there's a very good argument that, that it was that stability that allowed us to develop the society we live in today. Because humans have been humans for a very long time. Our species has been around for 300,000 years at least. And, you know, it's, it's been the big brain, the kind of, you know, the body we're in, the bipedal upright ape, and the stable climate that has allowed us to develop this extraordinary civilization. Um, if you look into the future, however, you can see that that period of stability is now coming to an end in our lifetimes. It's happening right now. And we'll go into a period, I fear, of extraordinary climatic instability. It's happening right now. And here's the thing. All of our buildings, all of our development plans, all of our cities, pretty much everything we do in the built world, all of that is predicated on tomorrow's climate being a lot like today. Which, well, it's looking more and more like that won't be the case. Climate change is big, and maybe that's why people find it scary, because it touches a lot of things. So we're going to break it down into smaller pieces, which, believe me, makes all of this a lot easier to contemplate. In this episode, we're going to look at water, and then we'll look at heat waves, and then finally, a topic that's never far from an Australian's mind, bushfires. Break them down, understand the risks, and then ask what we can do about them. Although I have to admit, the first of these risks, well, there's a story about King Canute. He was king of England in the early 11th century. And supposedly, he tried to command the tides. Now, 
That story has been told with two different meanings. And one of these meanings shows Canute as a king who was so hyped up on his own power that he thought he could control nature. Now, there's another, more subtle reading, which shows Canute demonstrating to his earls the limits of his own power. That there's human power and then there's nature, and you can't turn back the tide. Just as you can't stop a rising sea. The world is facing this problem, and you see it. If you, once you get tweaked, turned on to coastal erosion and sea level rise, you can hardly look at a, a regional newspaper anyway, or a regional media without seeing it. Now, Tim is right. You might have read or seen how the winter of 2020 turned into a horror story for the central New South Wales coastal town of Wamble. As winter storms turned into east coast lows, waves battered the shoreline, eroding the frontage along a half kilometer of seashore that was crowded with homes and undermined. One by one, they began to collapse, falling into the sea. With each storm, And we had three big storms in three weeks. With each storm, a few more houses disappeared. It also hit houses down in Coleroy and Narrabeen in Sydney's northern beaches. So why is this happening now? Well, like most things, water expands as it warms. If you have a kilogram of water at 10 degrees, that's a liter of water. Well... If you heated it up to 30 degrees, it takes up just a tiny bit more space. And the difference is so small, you would never notice it in a pan as water comes to a boil. But multiply that by one and a quarter septillion. That is a one followed by 21 zeros. That's how many liters of water there are on Earth. And those little differences, they really start to add up. And that's a big reason why the oceans are rising. The earth is warming and water expands. Now, all of this is happening so slowly, we mostly don't even notice it. And that's the danger, as Tim points out. It's like a cancer. It Mm. starts off little and barely noticeable. And it just exacts, exacts the cost year after year after year and keeps growing. And if you leave it too late to treat it, you've actually left it too late because the costs become overwhelming, right? You have to have a plan and a strategy in place to deal with this before you're faced with an economic cost so stupendous it could destroy our economy. And I'm not exaggerating there. I mean, really, this is one of those issues that we've got to watch very carefully. Okay, so what do you do if you're living in an area with lots of coastal erosion? Well, we'll come back to that. Right now, all we want to do is watch it very carefully. Because it's not just the oceans that bring us water, it's also the skies. So the story of rainfall under climate change depends also very much on the scale that we are interested in. This is true for temperature as well, but it's true even more so for rainfall. So, for example, if we are interested in global mean rainfall, that's largely controlled by the energy balance of the Earth. And we know quite a bit how that's going to change. So we know that um, under climate change, the Earth will be warmer. We also know that the ability of the air to contain water vapor, the amount it can contain, depends strongly on temperature. So as the Earth warms, um, we would expect more water vapor in the atmosphere. 
That's Christian Jacob, a professor at Monash University who builds models of the Earth's atmosphere. His data has shown him that as the Earth heats up by one degree, we see around 2 or 3% more water in the atmosphere, water that will eventually fall to Earth, as Stephen Sherwood has seen in his own research. We've had about a degree of global average temperature rise due to human um, emissions of carbon dioxide, and we're already seeing... Uh, big increases in flooding in some places. We're seeing more frequent, severe flooding events. And, um, I mean, that's not necessarily everywhere, but um, more likely than not, if you live in a part of the world that already has had floods in the past, you're going to probably have worse ones as the world gets warmer. But where's that water going to fall? Turns out That is not an easy question to answer. Christian Jacob tries to answer this with his models, but well... What we would really like to know is how is rainfall change in Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, Darwin, you know, places we care about in this country. How is the rainfall going to change there? Now it gets really complex because the rain in those regions is controlled by what atmospheric scientists call circulation systems. Think of the high and low pressure systems down south in in Australia, right? Low pressure system bring fronts, fronts bring rain. So critically, the question, how is rain going to change with climate change is how are high and low pressure systems going to change? How are those fronts going to change? And so on and so forth. And that's a very, very difficult question to answer. The other difficulty we have in Australia particularly is that the year-to-year variability in rainfall is very large. So already our rainfall is changing dramatically from year to year. In other words, we don't really know. Now, with all of this extra energy kicking around, Stephen Sherwood predicts that intense rain events will become more intense. I think we can be confident that uh, in most parts of the world that already experience heavy rains, these are going to become really heavy uh, in the future and that this is going to have uh, a big effect on, on flooding. The only places that aren't going to see any increases like that are going to be places that get drier, where your total annual precipitation is less. And that's not good either. Uh, But if that happens, then okay, maybe you won't have any more floods. But if your rain is staying kind of like what it is, I think we can be pretty confident that you're going to be having more of these severe events. And that's already happening. In Townsville in 2019, days and days and days of rain. There was a, um, a very serious event in 2019, November in Townsville, uh, northern part of Australia, where they... Um, set a new record for multi-day precipitation. Uh, It was was incredible uh, flooding, lives lost, over a billion dollars worth of damage. And whether that's the sort of thing we're going to start seeing in the future, we don't really know. It could have just been a really crazy one-off event um, that lasted a long time. And I think one of the big science questions is why did that happen? Why did that event sit there for 10 days, dumping rain day after day? And is that going to happen more? We don't know why that happened, but if we're keeping an eye on the risks of the future, we can predict that extreme events like that will become more common. 
because of all the extra heat in the atmosphere, which means more water vapor, which means more precipitation. So that's the risk here. When we return, we'll take a look at what we can do to mitigate those risks. Welcome back to the Next Billion Seconds User's Guide to the Future. We've taken a good look at the risks posed by flooding. Now, what do we do? Well, it turns out quite a bit. For answers, we turned to Brisbane architect James Davidson, and we asked him about the kinds of risks floods pose to homes. It's important to understand the type of flooding in order to understand how to actually effectively kind of deal or adapt to that kind of flooding. And so, for example, the more slower type of flooding that you're talking about where we get a few days' notice and then typically um, that kind of... uh, We can prepare to remove our um, contents and things out of our homes or put them upstairs or something like that. Um, However, those areas are also more than likely to have the water kind of sitting around for three or four days after the event as well. Um, sometimes a week, um, sometimes even longer. So obviously water is, um, if you have materials that are sort of water soluble, um, then obviously the, the longer the water sits around, the, the more damage occurs. Um, so for example, um, in that situation, what we've seen in the work that we've done is say hardwood timbers, um, uh, sort of very good from a a water solubility point of view versus softwood timbers like pine. Very bad from a water solubility point of view um, because typically will soak up more water. Um, However, if you then turn turn to sort of think about flash flooding, um, that's typically in areas where not necessarily as close to the river, sort of on uh, in hills and valleys around, say, if I refer to Brisbane, um, um, we're thinking about, say, given that Brisbane's quite a hilly city with a lot of topographical differences, um, you can get sort of a metre and a half of water through um, in two hours in in and out of your property um, at certain points. And that obviously has a a different kind of impact on, on the materials that are used in that house. So maybe it's not as important to keep those materials as waterproof as such, but more water resistant potentially. And so we sort of have to understand a lot of the kind of flood context before we can kind of respond and then essentially adapt to to that context. Okay. So we understand the kind of damage floods can do to homes, both the slow kind and the flash flood. But how do homeowners even know if their home might be at risk? Typically, in my experience, and it's been with hundreds and hundreds of families now, the answer is a big N-O to that one. Um, no. And it's not their fault necessarily. Um, a lot of the time, um, I think the real estate industry could be a lot more helpful when it comes to being upfront with people about their flood risk. Um, also, the uh, say, the conveyancing um, section of the legalities are so like solicitors could could focus a little bit more on this. Um, at the same time, though, in their defence, I don't want to be too critical, but but I will also defend them. It is actually a difficult thing to do to get to an, to an understanding. And um, these days, from my experience, 
working with you know a, a whole bunch of local government authorities, the information is getting better. Um, one of the interesting things that I've seen, a lot of people, a lot of kind of local government authorities uh, sometimes afraid of, they've, they've got the flood mapping, but sometimes they're afraid to actually release that, that flood mapping, mainly because they're afraid of the repercussions at the local level um, what the general general community might actually kind of um, react to. So in some cases, maybe even many cases, a homeowner isn't even aware of the risks of flooding, which means they won't take steps to mitigate because they don't know they should. If there was a, more of a concerted effort to explain why that had come about, I think, and from my experience again, People are actually a lot more open to uh, living with and adapting these days to these events because we all know that it's happening. And um, typically these areas, people have experienced flooding before. So, yeah, it's a bit of a complex issue, but I think it could be a lot better done in terms of community awareness raising. So maybe step one is to have a conversation with council and learn what they know about historical floods and the potential for future floods. And if you find out you do live in a flood zone, then what? First and foremost, um, I would identify the type of flooding. Now, that could be, as you as mentioned earlier, riverine flooding. Uh, that could be creek flooding. Um, and it could be uh, overland flow, which is commonly talked about as flash flooding um, or urban flooding. Now, from my experience, and it's only because I work in this element every day, I wouldn't freak out. There are solutions, and, and it comes down to design solutions that could be implemented to make life easier living in those areas and to the point where, for instance, people shouldn't be extremely concerned about that situation unless once they find out that their flood context is, oh, by the way, yeah, your flood context is four metres of water heading at you, heading towards you at 12 and a half metres a second, right? We are talking like tsunami style. Now, I would definitely get out of that way. Um, but if we, if it is, as you mentioned earlier, a sort of a slower, more, slower burn where you can actually prepare for it, you can do things to your home that can make things easier to clean up after the fact if you're willing to accept that you are going to get flooded. Now, if you find that too difficult to accept, just get out. Get out of the way. Um, but if you're willing to say, look, you know, we get two or three days' notice, um, how about we keep our habitable rooms above a particular f defined flood level? Um, but everything underneath that we accept will be floodable and therefore we design it in a way that it, it's just super simple to kind of wash out after an event and move back in. If somebody's living in a single-storey home um, and they're aware that they're getting quite a lot of water through at a particular, you know, some, sometimes up to every you know, two to three years you could be getting, or you could get it three times in one year, um, getting a serious amount of water through your home, um, I would consider raising that house. Um, if if you are living in a, 
uh, say, a brick veneer home on slab on ground, um, concrete slab on ground, I would be questioning how that's happened, um, mainly because, and it would basically come down to a legacy issue to do with flood planning levels um, at the local scale. Um, it, it's a very difficult thing to adapt a home like that. Personally, I'm, I'm not a fan of um, the brick veneer concrete slab on ground home in a floodplain. I think that's just asking for trouble. So therefore, if you are, say, in Townsville, which is where I saw a lot of this happening um, in, you know, not a, a few years ago, there were the big floods up there. And I was there helping out um, on some insurance matters and um, you could so easily see that those houses that were slightly elevated, even half a metre, had no damage. Whereas the next door neighbour, slab on concrete slab on ground, plasterboard everywhere, you know, uh, like even even 100 millimetres of water above the slab level, above the ground level, decimated the house. And I think housing, what we call, it's, an, it's a bit of an architectural term, like typology, so the type of housing, um, timber frame, elevated, easy to raise if needed, um, good for passive cooling when it comes to allowing air to flow through and underneath the home. So what does a flood-resilient home actually look like? Um, basically, cavities are bad. So, for example, um, when you've got two outer skins and a, a gap in between, you know, putting it very, very simply, that gap can be prone to collecting mud, um, having issues with longer-term mould problems, which then lead to quite a number of health issues. Um, so the best thing to do is to not have a cavity. Um, so therefore, whether it's a, sort of a, a concrete block construction um, that's been filled and then rendered, uh, with, or a like the traditional Queenslander that has a single, what we call single skin, so a single line of cladding on one side where the, you see the um, exposed timbers on the other. Um, incredibly easy, no cavity construction and no gap. Simple things like understanding um, what to do with cabinetry, for instance. So your kitchen, you, there are ways to design cabinets these days where you could either pull them out and put them upstairs prior to an event if you've got time or you could actually let them go through. There's a lot of products on the market now that are quite sustainable, but also waterproof, um, that are just as, uh, in terms of a price, just as similar to, as to sort of tip, your typical kind of chipboard and laminate stuff that you see in every kind of home around the country. If you are in a flood zone, you can rethink the design of your home to accommodate the fact that, well, every once in a while, it will flood. There is no magical house as such. It's the principles and the strategies of material usage and construction. So, for example, I could make a, a heritage home in Melbourne flood resilient. It, this is the thing. It's not about challenging and changing our kind of building codes to have some sort of new whiz-bang, amazing-looking, fandangled new type of home. And that's the, that's the beauty of it is because if we did that, nobody would do it, Right. So follow the principles, follow the strategies, and 
that's what makes it affordable and it, that's what makes it less scary when it comes to sort of having to say... I mean, obviously, the, the quintessential Queenslander is a very good model for a flood environment. Um, don't get me wrong. You know, something that's really super close to the ground, like in Melbourne, um, that's got... that's brick. It's very difficult to make flood resilient, but you can, st- you can do it. At the same time, in Melbourne, we're focusing a lot more on trying to keep the water out because of that issue. Like, it's... There's... You know, it is a different, different issue down there. Um, but at the same time, the principles are all there. Although, if you're faced by a rising ocean, you have a different set of problems. I've had a bit of experience down at the Gold Coast in this in, in this um, sort of area, and I think that um, obviously, if your home is being undermined from from the sea, then you've got a big issue. And you you know, there's very little you think. You know, I don't think you can do too much to be honest. However. Um, if you haven't got that situation, but you've got, say, a storm surge situation in a big, a big sort of storm, then there are things that you can do. And so there's some very, very, very good examples of this kind of stuff in Mississippi when I was over there. Um, uh, Biloxi is a particular town that got wiped out with Hurricane Katrina. They've built back in a different way um, with some really good principles about... like the, 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 One of the major issues with storm surge is actually not when the building gets hit with the first surge, it's actually the suck as the water retreats. And that's what the, where the damage comes from, typically. It's when huge amounts of water are actually being sucked back out to sea. And that's, that's what they found. So if you can, through bracing, appropriate structural bracing, um, your foundation systems, etc., your tie-down systems in your home, you can resist those forces. In almost every case, there's something you can do today to remove some of the risks associated with flooding in your home. Yes, the floods will come. But how we deal with them, that's on us. If we know they're coming, and we do know they're coming, it's up to us to be aware and be prepared. Which brings us back to where we started with Sally Dominguez on the importance of resilience. Resilience is not only being stable within yourself, very self-aware, and uh, having a growth mindset, but then being able to reach out and connect with others and lift generally everybody else in your vicinity. Because again, we want to thrive. Survival is just not enough. Doing the work, learning the risks, then making preparations. That's the kind of resilience that connects and lifts everyone else around you, your family, your neighbours, your community. It's good work. The kind of hard yards that Australians are up for And it's the first chapter in our user's guide to the future. In our next episode, we'll take a look at heat waves. Are they becoming more common? What does the science say? And what does it mean for the way we live and work? That's the next chapter in our user's guide to the future. All this talk about climate and weather and rain and floods and rising sea levels has probably raised some questions. If so, we'd like to hear from you. Drop by our website at nextbillionseconds.com or leave us a message on LinkedIn. We'll do our best to answer them. Big thanks to Sally Dominguez, Tim Flannery, Stephen Sherwood, Christian Jacob and James Davidson for coming onto our show. Thanks to the Center for Climate Extremes at UNSW for facilitating connections with some of the world's best climate scientists. 
The Next Billion Seconds User's Guide to the Future was written and presented by Mark Pesci, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia in partnership with GIO. Producer Alex Mitchell and sound production Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastoneaustralia.com.au, download the Podcast One Australia app or search The Next Billion Seconds. This is Mark Pesci, thanking you for listening.